It's good to see you all here this morning on a beautiful Sunday to be here in worship with you. As many of you know, last Sunday we had a briefer, uh, small worship in the chapel to celebrate our ministries. We had people from our different ministry teams and directions speak on exalting in worship, deepening in Christian faith, gathering in community, and stretching into justice. And then at 4 o'clock we had a big service in here that was really long. It was about almost two hours long. But it was full of all of our musicians, and we had special guests here who spoke to us. We served communion. Our pastor emerita, Pat Coglin, was with us. It was a big celebration to install me officially as your senior pastor. And I just have to ask you, if you uh, were a part of that worship service, either singing or being a part of liturgy, just raise your hand. Great. Thank you all. And children, you were a part of that as well, our cherubs and our carolers. If you came to the service, raise your hand. Thank you. If you helped with the reception, either setting it up or preparing food or bringing food, raise your hand. Thank you. Willett Hall has, well, it has looked that fine, but someone paid a lot of money for it. It has looked wonderful that afternoon. And I, there are many people I need to think about that, but I know Betty Lindsay did a lot of fabulous work along with members of our search and call committee and our council in making that a truly hospitable event, along with our staff, Marla, who's here today, and Lisa and Susan. So from the bottom of my heart, a big thank you. I feel duly installed, <laughs> and gratefully so. And it's been a good nine months, and I'm excited for what lies ahead, and I want to talk a little bit about that today as we're going to talk about it in our all-parish meeting. First, let us just pray together. Loving God, take our lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our bodies and work through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with your Holy Spirit, that we might be good news people, full of grace and love and compassion and work toward justice. All these things we ask in your holy name, in your many names, and let the people say. Amen. This text today from the book of Acts seems like a fitting bookend to where we started off. And I tried to think where the other bookend might have been. It could have been as far back as this weekend last year when I preached with you for the first time on my candidating Sunday. Or it could have been when you had the Time and Talent and Treasure Festival in the fall in September when you heard about all the gifts and offered your gifts. Or it could have been when I arrived in early October and, and we started this new relationship together. It could have been an Advent. But the place that I trace it to actually is the first Sunday in Lent, when we looked at the 12th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And when he talks in that chapter so beautifully about the gifts we all have and how we can be the body of Christ together. And we had a dialogue sermon where you all talked in pairs and trios together. And many of you went outside your comfort zone, and it was like a workshop in here for about 10 minutes where we discussed that. Then we had our Lenten series, we went into Holy Week, and we went into Easter, and then we've had a lot going on for the past six to eight weeks. We had wonderful guest preachers, and we, come, we came to the day of Pentecost, and we flew all the streamers, and now we are here about to launch into summertime. And this text, to me, feels like a good bookend to that identification of our gifts. It reminds me of these two guys, named, both named Tom, who graduated from Brown University in the 80s. And they didn't know what to do with their lives. A lot of their friends were going off to Wall Street and making their fame and fortune in places. But Tom 
and Tom decided to go to the island of Nantucket. And they decided they would get along however they could, whether it was shampooing dogs or shucking clams or working at parties or being bicycle messengers or running a small little convenience store on a 22-foot Boston whaler in Nantucket Harbor. One of the Toms had taken a trip to Spain where he, he had had this peach concoction that tasted great, and he thought he'd try to recreate it. And so they did a little puree of peaches. They didn't really know how to operate a blender, but they figured how hard could it be. And they made this concoction, and they put it in old liquor bottles, and people couldn't get enough of it. And they started making other drinks, too, and they became Tom and Tom of Nantucket Nectars. Within eight years, their business doubled several times over until they were doing a gross revenue of $60 million a year. They didn't know what they were doing. Actually, there were times when the cash flow was not so great and they were sleeping in their cars. But they were on this rollicking ride of an idea that took hold. And finally, someone that they took care of a boat for said, you guys have some initiative. You're nice looking. You're affable. You have a vision. I'll give you a half a million dollars. And they took that and ran with it and built their business. It eventually got bought by Ocean Spray in uh, southeastern Mass, and then by Cadbury Schweppes in London, and finally by Pepsi in Plano, Texas. They're still involved with the company, but not on a daily basis. But what happened was they went from being two guys on a boat who really didn't know what they were doing to running a multi-million dollar operation that had taken off from them until they finally realized that the skills that they had had as young entrepreneurs were not the same skills they needed to run a global company, and they turned it over to someone else. Any of you who've been a part of a startup or a nonprofit that has begun knows what this is like. The skills that get you started are not necessarily the skills that sustain you. And that's what the apostles are discovering round about here in the sixth chapter of Acts. Entrepreneurial experts say there are sort of four steps as you're creating a business. The first is you go in with uninformed optimism. Just wildly crazy. People like our juice. People like the day of Pentecost, they like Peter's preaching, and 3,000 people sign up on the spot. How wonderful, how great could this possibly be? Then comes a stage of informed pessimism. This is the stage of the people who are coming to the apostles and saying, you know what, there are some people over here who are not being taken care of. And we Greek-speaking Jews, who are now trying to figure out a way of following Christ, wonder about you Jewish-speaking Jews, or Hebrew-speaking Jews who are trying to follow Christ, are doing about it, because you're the ones who started this whole enterprise and are trying to sell it to us, and we're a little doubtful about it continuing. The apostles scratched their heads, and they said, well, yes, I guess that is what we should be doing. I mean, all through the prophets, they talk about taking care of the widows and the orphans of those who are least among us. In fact, Jesus said that to us, that someday we would meet him again, and he would ask us the question. When did you feed me when I was hungry? When did you give me drink when I was thirsty? When did you clothe me when I was naked? When did you visit me in prison? And they looked at him awestruck. What are you talking about? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it also to me. They realized we have been so caught up with the fire of the Holy Spirit in our preaching and teaching and spreading the word and the good news that we forgot about this essential work of serving other people.
It's a little bit of this third stage of creating a new business, which is called a crisis of meaning. I'm not sure what's coming next. I almost feel like it's so overwhelming I want to get out. I'm a little nervous. I don't know if we can do this. And then the next stage is either you crash and burn, and nearly half of the hundreds of thousands of, of businesses that start each year, that's what happens to them, or you decide to develop some hopeful realism and some informed optimism. And that's what the apostles did. They realized they needed to start being administers of the church, people who made it function on a daily basis. And they realized they needed some job descriptions to figure that out. How are we going to do this? I will tell you as a pastor that most of us go into seminary or divinity school because we want to preach and teach. We have something to say or we think we might have something to say and we want to do it. Or we go into it because we like leading worship and praying with people. Or we like it because we can be with people in the most special times in their lives. At the bedside in the hospital. Or at the time of death or birth or when they're making a hard decision or going through a hard time. That's where the real juice and meat of life is, and that's why a lot of us go into church, into the ministry. But then you come to be a pastor and you realize, oh, I need to know something about fundraising. They don't usually teach you that in seminary. Some good seminaries do, but I'll tell you at some of the Ivy League divinity schools, they don't stress it. They actually say, ah, you'll learn that in the first six months. Right. You need to know a little bit about budgets, how they work. I have to admit, I still don't understand our budget completely, but I'm learning. You also have to do personnel management, build a team. And you also have to do volunteer coordination and inspiration. All skills they teach you in an MBA, but they don't necessarily teach you when you're learning to preach and teach and hold people's hands and pray with them in the hard times of life. I interviewed someone this week who's interested in becoming ordained, and she has an MBA and worked in marketing and business for a long time, and I said, great, you're exactly what we need. You know how this works if you've ever coached or been a part of a sports team. You, you look for the people who can do the different jobs, right? You look for the big kid, Now I don't know football that well, and those of you who do can help me out, but if the really big kid comes to you who looks like they can stop a truck, you ask them to be a Linebacker, thank you. If they're really good at finding the ins and outs of openings and where you can go with that, you ask them to be a... What about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if they really have a really um, great... If they, they look like they've got strong, sturdy legs and they can be a closer, you ask them to be a... Okay, great, great. And if they look like they can be a leader and call the plays and have a strong arm... Thank you, quarterback, that's right. It's highly specialized in football. I don't really understand it. The same is true in any orchestra. You look at a kid who might want to play the violin, but you need a few violas. You ask them to do that. Or someone, as I was, wanted to play the trumpet, and they said, no, you look like you have trombone lips. <laughs> you can try that. Yeah, or if they want to keep a rhythm. Garrison Keillor did a wonderful thing on this where he was trying to inform young Lutherans of how they should choose to be in the orchestra. And he basically dissed every part of the orchestra as not being suitable enough. Violinists and trumpeters are too egotistical, too vain. 
uh, violas, players will end up being in a parking lot roasting a chicken over a spit with a bottle of wine with a woman named Rita. You don't want that. Cellists and bass players are much too sensual holding the instrument between their legs and those low notes that stir you. He actually said the people you want to be, if you're a Lutheran in the orchestra, are the percussionist, because you have to wait long periods of time, patiently, expectantly, and then when you come in, it has to be exactly right and full of passion. Or a harpist, because it takes forever to tune that instrument. <laughs> and because you're good at dealing with immovable objects, like elderly cranky parents who are hard to get in and out of minivans. And you have patience and precision. Those, he said, are suitable parts of the orchestra. I don't know, I think Garrison Keillor went a little too far. We all have a part to play. What the apostles were essentially doing was asking people to be deacons, which is another way of saying servants, or perhaps even more accurately, as the text mentions, waiting at table. I don't know if you've ever waited on tables. I did it for a while, and I actually loved it. But you've got to have patience particularly if you're waiting tables in Cambridge. There's a level of entitlement that is in the air all the time. You've got to know when to hold back and let them have their conversation, their meal. You have to let, know when to go in and remove the plate, not too soon. You have to know exactly when you can drop the bill. You have to know how to work for a tip because you're making less than minimum wage. And you've got to know how to do it in the kindest way you have to be a little bit of Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes on Downton Abbey, anticipating their needs before they even know it. And so the apostles, perhaps after a long day of preaching and teaching and being inspired by the Spirit, sat down, I don't know, over a jug of grape juice or some Mediterranean wine and some olives, tired, bone tired, and they said, now who are the people who've been coming who could do this work for us? and help take care of the widows and orphans, and make sure they're being fed. Well, now there's Stephen. He's been coming a lot, and he sure has a lot of leadership potential. You know, his name means crown, and I think that's indicative of who he is. He's a real leader. He has this quiet passion that will go well, and he's pretty articulate, too. If you read on in the chapter of Acts, you'll see that Stephen joined them and became the first Christian martyr. He went on to give a speech so brilliant, so challenging, so provoking, that he was stoned on the spot. I don't know if they knew what they were asking these people to step into, but there was an element of risk about it. They said, oh, there's Philip. He seems really friendly, knows how to talk to people. His name means lover of horses, and I, I hear he knows how to ride a horse. That could be useful if we have to get somewhere fast. He's got those beautiful daughters and that beautiful wife. They, they come as often as they can. Let's ask him. Philip would go on to talk to people who were outside of the Jewish faith and welcome them in. The Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of the queen of Ethiopia's treasury. Simon the magician who was considered a sorcerer and inappropriate for any kind of faith. He's the one who brought them in. And he raised four daughters who ended up being prophets. There's Prochorus, now he would be good because he knows how to sing, and he's in charge of the chorus, and we need him to be a leader. There's Nicanor, 
He's a veteran, you know, was in the Roman army. It burned him out. He saw things none of us will ever see. But he wants to be a good Christian. He wants to follow the way of Jesus. He wants to have faith. And I hear he's a fighter. He'll be good at negotiating contracts when we need to find a building. And Timon, honorable, worthy, grew up in the Jewish faith, knows our people, knows how to bring other people in. Parmenas, who is a constant presence. Nicolaus, whose name means how to subdue the people. He was born a pagan, became a Jew, and now is a part of this way of Christ. I imagine his wife will do most of the work, but let's get him anywhere, in here anyway. And so they called, as you see on the cover of your order of worship, these seven men. Because that's how they did it in those days. They just called the men. But we know there were women and families with them as well who made these things happen, who became a part of the church. The meeting that those apostles had is very similar to what we do in our discernment and engagement group, in council, on staff. We look out and think about all of you and your gifts that you bring so richly, just like that first Sunday in Lent. And we wonder aloud where you might want to express your gifts in a spiritually fulfilling way. Some people I know have to be asked. They won't sign up. Other people let you know when they show up. I'm here if you need me. And some people, I will confess, get overlooked because we just don't know for sure or our synapses just weren't working in that way. You know, we talk about the Holy Spirit as this magical, wonderful thing. We talk about calling as something that might be a bump in the night or a voice from afar. But sometimes it's just a call that comes through the telephone or via email and says, are you willing to try this out? Sometimes it's a person talking to you out in the hallway and saying, you know, we've got this project that could be really fun and you seem like the right person for it. Sometimes it's a stirring in your own life. Something that says, it's time for me to lean in and be a part of this community. And sometimes it means, no, I'm good. I'm just here to receive right now. It's all blessed. It's all beautiful. It's all good. Now, I'm going to invite some of you to stand here in a minute because there are many of you who have leaned in and stood up over time, and I'd like you to do that for us now so we may recognize you. First of all, if you've ever rung the tower bells to let the town of Brookline know that we are going to have worship, would you stand up? If you have ever been an acolyte that has helped bring in the light of Christ that we may remember what we're doing here, stand up, and if you're short, stand up on a pew so we can see you. <laughs> and the people who prepare the acolytes, Betty Gray and Christina Rowinski. If you have ever helped prepare communion that we might wait on table here together, if you ever have coordinated or serve it in this place, stand up. If you've ever been an usher or a head usher, stand up. Turn around and look at him back there in the back. If you've ever been a liturgist reading scripture with us or helping us say prayers or coordinating as Amy has done now for two years at least, helping us make sure we have readings. <laughs> If you have been a part of the bell choir or led it, Bob Phoenix has led the bell choir beautifully in so many ways, stand up. If you've been a part of the cherub choir or its leaders, Deb Wald and Vina Priestley, stand up. 
if you've been a part of the carolers that David Rockwell and Alicia Shue chairing. And I have to tell you that after 20 years, is that right? 30 years, <laughs> Alicia is stepping down from the carolers. And we've, <laughs> it's well earned, I'll just tell you that. <laughs> and we have some other people who are gonna help out, but would you just give a, a word of thanks for Alicia and what she has offered. It gives me great joy to see our children and youth leading us in worship in that way of lending their voices to us. And so I ask all our youth choir members and Susan, who helps lead them, to stand up. If you've been a part of our chancel choir, stand up. As you know, this year we added the trio Cleonis, which I don't think any of them are here today, but we're grateful for their music making in worship with us. If you've ever sung in worship or played the piano or any sort of instrument, drums, whatever, stand up. Amen. Let's give all of these people a round of appreciation. You may be seated. Now that's just our exalting in worship. If you've been a part of the youth and children deepening team, which celebrated with the church school teachers out here today, stand up our adult deepening team that has many plans in store for us stand up, including our associate pastor and Christian education coordinator, as well as church school teachers, stand up. Thank you. You may be seated. If you are part of our stretching ministry into justice, stand up. If you are part of our missions committee, stand up. If you're part of the discernment and engagement team helping us match our gifts in this place, stand up. Some people are standing a lot. If you're part of our maintenance team that makes sure this building is a place we can have worship, stand up. If you are part of our church council, now going off of your term or still serving forward, stand up. Is there anybody I've left out? Or, what is it? People who bring potluck dinners or treats for uh, coffee hour. Stand up or raise your hand. May you repeat after me, thank you for all your gifts. And one more round of appreciation. I'll close with this final word, which is to say that my friend Lillian says in the Christian faith, we are never graduating, we are always matriculating. We are always going through. And this week I went to a sixth grade graduation in which the children had written notes to themselves for when they're freshmen in high school. A note of what they hoped for themselves, and they dropped it in a basket, and they went over a bridge. And as they went, the teachers called their names and said, Raphael, who brings his courage and his love of baseball with him to seventh grade, and Ishibita, who brings her respectfulness and her love of science to seventh grade, and Leo, who brings his good math skills and his friendliness to seventh grade. I look at all of us, all of you, and I think of the many abundant gifts which we bring forward in faith as we learn to wait at table as we learn to be the community of Christ. And I say, 
Thank you, God. Amen.